0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week I am joined in sunny Bavaria, surrounded by snow in Schloss Elmau by Christoph Heisken, who is the German Ambassador to the United Nations, but was for 12 years before that the Foreign Policy Advisor to the German Chancellor Angela Merkel we're going to talk about the Alliance for Multilateralism. So Christoph, we know that we're in a world which is moving from one which we hoped would be defined by multilateralism and global governance to one of great power competition, and that many of the international institutions are under great pressure now from that great power competition. So it's in that context that this Alliance for Multilateralism was launched. You were their presence at the creation you brought together many different leaders from around the world can you explain what some of the thinking is behind it and and what it actually means in practice yes thanks mark and uh, thanks for the
1: opportunity to explain a bit this this, uh, initiative and the background to it and uh, in your introduction you already alluded to multilateralism and the history of multilateralism. And this has to do a lot with Germany. Because when you go back in history, you'll see that between 1870 and 1945, within 75 years, there were three major wars. There two world wars. And uh, the consequences of this was that the international community, the Allies, US, France, Britain, China, Russia, all said, well, We have to change that. We cannot have a situation where conflicts are resolved by force, but by diplomacy. And so the UN was created. And uh, when you look at the history in the next 75 years from a German angle, you see that these were very happy years. These were years where we didn't have wars in in Europe. The German-French rivalry turned into German-French friendship, First World War, which was a war in Europe fought by military force uh, since the 50s has been turned into the the European Union where conflicts are resolved by the European Court of Justice and um we have with the European Union a fantastic um, construction that has never been never existed before in that way in in Europe we have the UN we have the UN charter we have the universal declaration of human rights we have the European Union we have so many multilateral agreements that have resolved so many conflicts we have in Europe the OSCE and um the impression is that this multilateral world is under under threat and that we are returning to a period where those who are stronger are getting their way and it's not the rule of law that is dominating. And therefore, this Alliance for Multilateralism was founded as an initiative by German Foreign Minister Heiko Maas. It was a German-French initiative. Actually, it started already in 20. 20- 18 at the German Ambassadors Conference, but it was launched in a real way during the high-level week at the UN in September of uh, 2019. And um, on fairly short notice, it was a spectacular event where over 50 foreign ministers came together, kind of the founding fathers of this um, Alliance for Multilateralism. And this presence of, of so many ministers from so many different countries and continents showed that the old idea, the old idea that you resolve problems through diplomacy and through multilateral agreements, through the rule of law, through the rule of international law, that this idea is not that. And um, we are working on these. We are working on the on this initiative as a general idea, but also on very specific terms. So it's something that Germany
0: stands for, and we'll gauge on this. So... Before we look at what the Alliance can actually do, maybe we can start to diagnose some of the challenges at the moment. You sit in New York, you were representing Germany on the Security Council and have been right at the heart of a lot of the the most difficult discussions about global order and have seen all the, the tensions, but also... One of the big changes, I suppose, in recent years has been China playing a much more active role within the international system, not least in the in the UN itself, and being much more assertive in, in pushing Xi Jinping thought into different policy statements, taking control of key posts within the UN system, defining the agenda in a, in a very different way. So much so that whereas as Europeans, we used to think of the UN as a multiplier of European values and European order. Now in, in many domains, uh, it's Become a force multiplier for the for the Chinese worldview as well. What do you think the biggest pressure on the system is at the moment? If you had to describe the biggest challenges to multilateralism, don't don't get me wrong here.
1: We what you described about China's role and um, the the increase in China's weight is something positive. I mean, look at China and look what the country has done to bring millions of people out of poverty. You see at the the, the trading partner that China is. What our concern is that what you hinted a bit yourself in your question, you talked about Western values. I don't think that these are Western values that we are fighting for. We are trying to do what the founders of the United Nations established, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And there are no Western values. They're universal. By, a
0: Chinese, by a Chinese lawyer. He's one of the key authors of it.
1: <laughs> I didn't know that, but um it's a good argument. I can I can use no, but this is the the discussion I already had also in the Security Council with the Chinese ambassadors. There are universal values. When you when you cannot put one million members of an ethnic minority in a detention camp because you may, through this way, prevent a terrorist attack, you know, a handful of people. You know, this is. But um, from a Chinese perspective, you know, the well-being of a billion. Chinese is more important uh, than the well-being of one million. And this is not according to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, where the individual person is in the, in the center. And therefore, we say we're not defending Western values. We are defending universal values. And therefore, this is something that we, we also highlight in the Security Council. But let me go to answer your, your question. In the Security Council, and Germany is there for two years, uh, twenty. 19 and 2020, and we try to play a role as much as a elected member can do this. You know, sometimes we are called the tourists, you know, they're <laughs> briefly in the Security Council, and uh, we, of course, are, they're confronted with the professionals who are there forever, but uh, we try to do our best, and then we try to use these uh, two years to actually insist on the work of the Security Council in fulfilling its mandate from the, uh, from the Charter, and it's this Security Council that adopts legally binding resolutions. In the General Assembly, you also have resolutions that are adopted, but they are politically binding. The resolutions in the Security Council are legally binding. Therefore, we fight for the adherence to these resolutions. And when there are violations of these resolutions, when there are violations of international law, we feel obliged, and this is also the basis of the Alliance for Multilateralism, we feel obliged to actually call spade, a spade. A so in concrete terms, when our Russian friends invade Ukraine and uh, this continues the invasion of Ukraine, the annexation of Crimea continues to be on the agenda of the Security Council. We tell clearly that this was a violation of international law, a violation of multilateral agreements, and we continue to insist that the international law is is implemented. And the same holds true, staying with our sticking with our Russian friends, with regard to the international humanitarian law. When you see how Russia and and Syria are bombing civilians in Idlib and um, yeah. in in Syria in general, when. You see how Russia is protecting the Assad regime and you hear about the horrors in in, uh, Assad's prisons. You have to highlight this in the in the Security Council and call a spade a spade. When it comes to to our American friends, there again, America was at the foundation of the United Nations and the Charter. And if the United States say that they don't care about the JCPOA about the nuclear agreement with Iran, we had to say, listen, friends, this is enshrined in a. UN Security Council resolution, and as long as Iran adheres to it, you cannot just walk away. You are violating international law. When it comes to the Middle East, the um, recognition of of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, the um, question of the territorial sovereignty of Israel extending to the Golan Heights when you talk about the legal situation of the settlements, These are all questions that are clearly resolved by binding international law, and you cannot just forget about it because you don't like the resolution that may have been adopted during the previous administration. International law is independent of which government agreed to this. And coming back to our Chinese friends, I mentioned already the situation of um, the minorities and the detention camps for the Uyghurs, the details that have come out about this are horrific. And uh, also when it comes to the South China Sea, there is by China clear violation of international law and you have to call a spade a spade. If you really believe it and we Germans do that and this is, and we fight for it and this is respect for international law. This is what brought peace to Europe after the Second World War and we believe that this sh- should continue to be the orientation line for the world, for the United Nations. And this is why we, why we uh, promote our.
0: Initiative, the Alliance for multilateralism so we should come to that soon but maybe just before we do that you've described a a russian problem an american problem and a chinese problem for the un in particular but i suppose you could extend all of those three problems to other multilateral institutions as well but the other thing which is going on is is increasing competition between those powers particularly between china and america I was very struck talking to a very senior American diplomat a couple of years ago, and they were saying that what we do is we look at, at what China gets upset about in the international system, and then we do more of it. <laughs> and there does seem to be an interesting paradoxical process of re-engagement with the UN system from the US, partly as a means of pursuing this competition with China. Uh, John Bolton's obviously not in the White House anymore, but he's somebody who knew the UN very well and was quite sceptical about it. But it did also mean that he was quite active in getting involved in bits of the UN system which were relatively obscure. It would be very interesting to hear both how much of a, an issue that is and, and how it affects these kind of core values of multilateralism when great powers see it as a, a battleground for their pursuit of influence and attempts to, to undermine each other. I don't want to comment on that,
1: the policy you described. I just want to say one thing, which I say to all our partners, the United Nations and uh, UN Security Council, the the resolutions that are adopted by the Security Council are not a menu a la carte. These are all binding resolutions and you cannot insist on the implementation of one resolution and then forget yourself on the others. Your credibility is at stake and this policy will not work out. It may work out maybe on a certain issue and for a certain period but overall it will not work out. Your credibility is under stress and what happens if you continue to use the international law, just as you like it, then you know we have, as um, somebody famous in the US described it, you have a return to the jungle. So yeah. we reject this idea. I also tell my, to come back to our American friends, you know, Germany in the Security Council shares the sanctions committee on North Korea. Cannot imagine how popular we are with our American friends and we are praised and supported and say it's very important that everybody respects these sanctions so that the North Korea policy that the American president has embarked on with our support, by the way, that this succeeds. But then I tell them, your people will implement this and will say, okay, we have to do that when you on your side, also do it, when you also then respect other resolutions.
0: So it's not a menu on our
1: card. Yeah.
0: So let's now talk about what is the Lenin question. What is to be done? How does the Alliance of Multilateralism help? Is it an attempt by middle-ranking powers to come together and and tell the great powers that they need to listen more to the international system and stop uh, weaponizing the, the UN and the WTO and other institutions?
1: well first of all it's not a you know an organization or it's not something where you have a treaty and you you sign up to it and ratify it it's first this political idea which is an old idea but by creating by by mentioning it, by having you, Mark, do a podcast about it, we want to promote it, we want to promote it the idea we want to have people remember what the basis of our well being today is um, so it 's a general idea number one, number two, we want to apply this idea to specific topics and When the Alliance for Multilateralism was launched on the margins of the UN week in September, there was, of course, the general idea, but then also specifics. There are specific alliances for specific uh, topics, and these topics range from question of the respect for um, international humanitarian law, a call for action for the implementation of international humanitarian law. I I, I mentioned to you what happens with the attacks on the white helmets, with the attacks on hospitals in in Syria. This must not happen and we have to work on it. It works also on modern topics, lethal autonomous weapons, something that is, you know, it's threatening. That's something that we have to prevent that this gets out of control and therefore there's an alliance where we look at the principles for these uh, weapons. We look at another topic, and this is climate and security. And there we also pursue certain projects where we try to make people understand that there is a linkage between climate change and, and security when you look at specific geographic situations. But it's also an overall question, and we want to get uh, raise attention to it and have People look at it and see how you can confront this and, and what you do in concrete terms. So there are a number of concrete initiatives. We look at the freedom of, of media, freedom of press. We look at human rights. And um, so there will be a number of initiatives that we promote and see to it that it
0: also is not only a general idea, but also bears fruit in concrete situations. So maybe we could take one of those many things and and talk about what it could actually mean in practice. Because I think that's one of the the interesting things behind this idea that, as you say, you have a general thing. And then, in fact, it's more a set of alliances rather than a single alliance, which are functional and based around particular issues. But could you take one and, and maybe talk in a bit more detail about how it could work. Is it about um, caucusing before meetings? Is it about um, developing new norms? Is it about trying to, to work out how to get swing states on board? Because there are obviously some people who are challenging the core values of multilateralism. There are some people who are true believers and then there are a lot of for whom an interest-based case might work, but who are, need to be won over in, in particular institutions.
1: Yeah, it's all of this. It's all of this what you said. It's all of this to different degrees in the, in, in the individual initiative. So let me take one, which um, is right now a very prominent one, and this is the you know we all follow and are concerned about climate change. When you're sitting here in the Bavarian Alps, you don't believe that this is an issue. You know, with the wonderful snow we have, the, here climate change is not the origin of, of conflict. But when you go to to other areas, you you see this. You see the dramatic effects of the Lake chat um, losing water, no longer feeding people that live around around this so these herders are leaving their places and look for other places where they can feed their animals but there meet um, and confront some farmers who are established and all of a sudden you have a fight for the breeding grounds and there is something that can lead to more general conflicts. When you look at this uh, Sahel zone and this area, you see many conflicts there. And one of the drivers is is climate change. So while, of course, we, and and while we speak, we have the COP meeting taking place in, in Madrid, But this is a general question. But we, uh, as we are a member of the Security Council, we see why don't we try to to link this and look at, at the specific, we then try to get this also into the Security Council, which is charged to um, preserve peace and security and and raise also the, the, the climate issue in the Security Council, so that this specific aspect of climate change is looked at and then countries are, organizations are then engaging in measures to prevent this from happening. Or when you see something coming up, see that you can get early action, get mediation, get fast impact projects so that this is looked at. And, um, we were surprised when we were launching it you do have some opposition to the topic say well the security council should only look at question of real war and conflict we say no we have to take a wider look we have to look also at conflict prevention you have to look at you know the reasons why do you get to a conflict and their climate is is one of them so we want to raise it and we were surprised countries from Estonia to Vietnam to Indonesia, many countries on security Council are affected by climate change. And this is a very, very popular topic. And we want to
0: have it on the agenda as one element in the very important fight against climate change. So if you take that topic, then who are the most active members in that particular alliance around climate security? You have them from all angles. You have the
1: um, the, the, the island state, we have the Dominican Republic that uh, has been affected like other uh, by the hurricanes. And, and they say we have to do something. You have a country like Vietnam, there were studies showing that in 2050, parts of the country will be flooded because um, the rise of the oceans. You have countries like Estonia where it's also on the Baltic Sea and and, and they, they feel climate change. So you have a, a number of countries that uh, support you in this endeavor. You have Niger now in the Security Council country that is affected uh, by climate change in the Sahel. So you have it from all different directions. Again, you also face opposition of people saying, well, this doesn't have to do anything with peace and security and you shouldn't look at that. Okay. So who are the biggest opponents of it on the
0: security
1: well, council? those who who take a very narrow view and um, who don't want to to really
0: have. So the Trump emerge. administration would be um, one.
1: The, the Trump administration is not among those who you know wake up in the morning and see how we can how <laughs> we can support us. But it's the same with our Russian and, and, and Chinese friends.
0: Where do you see? I mean, one of the things which distinguishes you as a German diplomat is how much time you've spent thinking about Europe and its role in the world, you spent a long time in Brussels before working for the German Chancellor and were one of the fathers of uh, of European foreign policy. How do you see Europe fitting into the alliance of multilateralism? It won't surprise you when you look
1: at this uh, alliance that European countries are, a lot of European countries are are in there. And uh, Therefore, I do believe that the European Union, the European, the members of the European countries will be the core. But this, of course, I think it's very natural because after all, the European Union is the incarnation of the idea of multilateralism, of resolving conflicts, looking at challenges in a multilateral way by establishing an, an international order. But what was very important for us that uh, when we look at this lines that we also look at countries from other continents. So uh, from Ghana to Singapore to Chile, you know, we, we, Australia, New Zealand. So we have members from all continents. But let me take your question with regard to the European Union. Also, let me take it up and, and bring it a bit into the Security Council. Not that you asked that, but let me use this as a PR here. (laughs) We are right now five members of the European Union in the, in the Security Council. Poland, it's Belgium and Germany as elected, plus France and, for the time being, the United Kingdom. And um, I'm positively surprised how closely this cooperation between European countries functions. Since uh, we have been Security Council starting in January 2019, there has not been one vote in Security Council where the five didn't vote in the same way. We regularly go and have press stake stake stakeout. So this cooperation between the European Union member states in the Security Council is something that I would, um, from my side, say as a positive surprise in the Security
0: Council. Yeah, it's absolutely, I think, not a given, given that Poland was one of the countries that was very active against the global compact on migration, and there were obviously big divisions within the European Union on a lot of these big issues. How come you think you've managed to make European unity more real in New York than it is in Brussels? First,
1: I must say they, our Polish friends have a fantastic um, ambassador, very experienced Arab speaking, a lot of experience in the in the world and, and looking at having experience on conflict, on conflict resolution and uh, very pragmatic. The good thing is you don't look in the Security Council, uh, some of the issues that Right now, maybe divide uh, the climate. and an Europe issue that's uh,
0: pretty divisive within the yes, EU as
1: well. Climate is, but it is, when it comes to climate, it's not divisive the issue as such. It's the question for a country like Poland that. How um, to handle the transition. Uh, and, transition with a uh, big coal industry. Yeah. And we have it in Germany as well. We have regions where. So you have to manage that, and maybe for Poland, it's even a, a bigger challenge. But our um, Polish friends don't deny the, the issue as such. And therefore, on, on this issue, climate and security, I don't see a, a problem with, with Poland quite the contrary. It, it's very refreshing to work with our Polish and, and Belgian friends in the Security Council. And I must say also, our British friends are very European. So this works, this
0: works well. Within that group of countries you mentioned, there's, you know, the, the most, I think, central relationship within the EU is still the Franco-German relationship. And it's an area Where before we entered the latest, um, let's say, uh, interesting moment in Franco German relations, there was high hopes of of actually seeing the UN as one of the key places where Franco-German rapprochement could take place. And I know that you've been working very closely with your French counterparts. Um, There's been a change recently in terms of personnel, but you spent quite a long time thinking about what France and Germany could do together within the UN system. Can you talk a bit about that? First of all, on
1: the European issues, as I said, we do European stakeouts of the five European ambassadors. We vote on the same rate, so this works well. And um, in the last year, in, or in this year, in 2019, we had our presidencies in the Security Council. You know, the, the Security yeah. Council rotates monthly. Uh, we have it because it goes according to the English alphabet, France and Germany are next to each other. so with my French colleague, I agreed to do a jumelage, to do a joint German-French presidencies in the Security Council. We had a joint program for two months and presented that also together, and it worked very well. And um, what I was surprised was, and we come back to the idea of multilateralism, that many countries, African countries, others, said, well, this is really remarkable. So they used this to look back at the history and see you know, the 75 years of, of of conflict with three wars between Germany and France and and then since 1945 75 years of German French friendships how we were able to change this hate that was between governments and the people to a partnership and a, a close relationship and to manifest that at the UN also brought many colleagues to think well why can't we in our corner of the earth also achieve something like this so something that for a German and a French is very natural and something well you know isn't it boring to again come with german french no it was not it was very very alive and it was very important for many countries and i think we did a good job in presenting this friendship and demonstrate how when you have very bad relations and and you think you cannot resolve it to see well you can even overcome the gravest controversies and
0: problems between countries and the practical terms apart from the your joint presidency, what other changes are you looking at making in terms of how I mean at one point there was even sort of you took just after Macron was elected there was even speculation about France sharing its permanent seat with Germany, which would be a, obviously a big <laughs> structural change in terms of how French think about themselves as much as a, a change in international organizations. But are there specific changes which you've you've brought in in terms of how you work and the way that um, also France and Germany will work together after your term on the Security Council end? I mean, there were
1: also ideas to turn the European seats or the French seat into a European seat. But, um, you know, you have to look at the charter and um, uh, the charter is very clear. The Security Council is about member states individual state there's no institutional room for the european union in the security council so um, there will always be individual states members of the security council but what you can do is what we have what we have done to coordinate german french positions and we have regular meetings um, we have exchanges between our staff and uh, so we try always to come with a coordinated position into the security council and but also go beyond and have as i said the uh, five Europeans working together Uh, next year Poland will leave the Security Council we have Estonia coming in and um, we'll also work with Estonia very closely on institutional things it's a very traditional organization and it is too traditional when you look at the composition of the Security Council it reflects the situation of the world after the Second World War what we have to work on but this doesn't happen in the Security Council what we have to do is work at changing the Security Council, the composition, and this is something the General Assembly has to look, but we need a reform of the Security Council, which reflects the realities of the 21st century. And there again, I'm, I have to say, um, I see it very positively that our British and particularly our French friends see it the same way and also promote a recalibrating in the in the Security Council. The questions will we achieve that is another one, but there we work very closely with it. But let me close with one thing which I on a more lighter note, when we took over the presidency in the Security Council in April of last year, I um, insisted on opening the curtains of the Security <laughs> Council. And this was a big revolution, getting daylight into the Security Council, Wanted to have a fresh air and transparency. But there I had to realize that it's not that easy to change it because... Um Afterwards, some presidencies then again close the curtain. So, uh, you know, working on this and bringing some fresh air, having um, more not scripted discussions, but have a real exchange of views on, on on positions between senior diplomats, something that Germany stands for. And for for us, the Security Council is very important for us. It is a very important component of the international order and then we come back to where we
0: started on the alliance for multilateralism where we want international organizations to work thank you very much it's been great talking to you just one final question we often end the podcast with a bookshelf segment I don't know whether you might be able to suggest some things that people could read if they want to find out more about the Alliance for Multilateralism, either speeches or documents which explain it.
1: There are some speeches,
0: and um, I
1: don't know if you have a website. I will give you some links to it. But in general, I would propose that your listeners go back to the school room and look at the Universal Charter of Human Rights and, and look at some of the basic documents, and they're very enlightening. Great. And what's on your
0: bookshelf at the moment? Have you got time to read anything?
1: I'm trying to. I read every morning in New York, the New York Times, and it's a fantastic paper. And by the time I get through the paper, we have the next day and I have to start mm-hmm. over again. No, I wait for retirement at some stage to start to
0: read more, more more books. Okay, thank you very much, Ambassador Heisgen. We'll put links up to all of the documents that Ambassador Heisgen mentioned on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do write about it on your social media page or ours and give us a great review on whatever platform you've used to get to this podcast on. But for now, from Ambassador Christoph Heisgen and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The research of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenbosch and our editor is Marlene Riedel.